everybody, thanks very much for coming along. Um, so I suppose what I'm going to try and do in the second portion is to talk about some of the more um, like nuanced aspects of um, Borges' theories, or maybe some of the more just um, like less um, like popular versions, but sort of things which I, which I think are actually very beneficial to um, educational research. Uh, I'm going to go sort of uh, dip in and out uh, of using some um, empirical work to try and actually illustrate some of my points. And sorry f for the plug, but it's all from this book here, which is available at all good bookshops. And it is an SRG book series book. So I think if I'm on if, if I'm on the property, I'm like obliged to plug my SRG book. So but so it's it's all in there. Um, the one thing that I'm actually not gonna I'm not gonna touch on uh, today, but if anyone has any questions on that, um, that'd be great. Is on uh, budget and method. I think that's like a sort of a, a sort of like different sort of aspect actually of his work in terms of how he actually thinks that that we should do social research as well, but something which is actually beneficial. So if anyone does have any questions about that, I'd be, be more than um, uh, more than happy to uh, talk about it. So I think, so first of all, what what I want to talk about is failed. So failed is the sort of third third sort of piece in in the puzzle of uh, Borges' uh, schema of practice. So it's uh, as Richard talked about earlier on, it's it's that um, uh, the, um, the equation that um, Borgia gives us at the beginning of uh, one of his main books, uh, Distinction, where he talks about how it's uh, um, the habitus times capital plus field equals practice. And really, what field is, it's the social context for um, habitus and capital to uh, interact. And for anyone who's a bit of a French geek, the word that the the term that Borgia uses isn't le pre, which is like a nice field where you might go and have a a a, a, a picnic or a game of football. It's le champ, which is battlefield, right? And it means actually something very different. So it's so it's an actual site of um, aggression, hostilities, and there are winners and losers within the actual field. For some unknown reason, in English, it's just translated as field, even though it really actually should be battlefield to give it the actual sort of par, which um, uh, the idea of a uh, um, battlefield gives us. And fields have an inner logic or a common sense called doxa, which is usually written essentially by the people who run the field. So the sort of things that you should be doing to get on in the field, the, the sort of uh, ingrained common sense is easily written by the actual uh, dominant members of that field. And fields have rules. And so seeing as it's the World Cup, I felt obliged to also give a slight <laughs> football metaphor. So um, fields will reward you by, by being able to follow the rules and meeting the actual demands of the field. So if you think of a footballer, right, what are some of the skills that a footballer has? And Richard's also welcome to answer these questions because he's a massive football geek. So, what? Fast. Fast, okay. What else? Technique. Okay. Uh, anything else? We've got fast, we've got technique. Fitness. What, sorry? Fitness. Fitness, yeah. okay, yeah. Team skills. Team skills. What does the ball look like? Uh, <laughs> right, it's about that big, right? Yeah. Right? That's what the ball looks like in football? Yeah. But, Bigger? Okay, right. I'm not a football fan. So, what happens if you put them on 
on a tennis court, right? They're not going to be able to do, you know, their ball's too big, they're using their feet for some unknown reason, they're trying to get it into the net rather than over the net, you know, all of these things are, are going to mean that they'll actually fail at playing tennis, right? So fields have rules and fields uh, demand certain things from different people. And so um, we have to actually be able to actually meet these rules. So whilst it is a social context for habitus and capital, it's not as um, static as some people actually think about field. And, uh, and field's also located within the field of power, which is a sort of an, uh, sort of, sort of an order um, of hierarchy of where sort of various fields um, uh, actually fit. And the sort of the um, illustration of how dynamic the field can be is from the process that Bourdieu calls uh, um, hysteresis. Now, unlike Richard, I'm not going to make you think in groups, what could hysteresis possibly be? Because it's a bit of an uh, <laughs> of a, of a, like, tricky term. So, and as you'll see from any of the actual quotes from Bourdieu that either me or Richard use, he's a real pain to actually read, right? It <laughs> usually takes me five or six readings of a page and then I can finally think, right, I've got one or two of the actual sentences on that page. Now there's the rest of them to go. So Borgia talks about hysteresis of habitus and he says, uh, the structural lag between opportunities and the dispositions to grab them, which is the cause of missed opportunities. So in other words, as the field changes, as the demands of the field change, again, this, you know, again, part of the, uh, the World Cup analogy, we brought in VAR this year, and some teams know how to play with that VAR rule, and some teams don't. So as the rules change, there can be a, there can be a, a lag or a gap of people actually catching up, right? And that's, that is very much based on um, the habitus. So whether the, whether the individual or the group or the institutional habitus is aware of these rules and knows how to then actually change accordingly to catch up to the uh, new rules. And uh, in terms of um, uh, HE and uh, um, graduate employment, which is the, the, the focus of my own research, Borgia talks about it um, in terms of the, the reduced buying power of degrees. So again, in one of his main books, uh, Distinction, he says, the hysteresis effect means that the holders of the devalued diplomas become, in a sense, uh, accomplices in their own uh, mystification. Since by the typical effect of, of allodoxia, they bestow a value of their devalued diplomas, which is not objectively acknowledged. In other words, people still think that these degrees have massive, have massive buying power. And so it sort of speaks to some of what uh, Richard was talking about at the very end with the respondent Leo and the idea that you just focus on your degree and you don't focus on, on other things such as MA clubs and uh, societies. And really that is coming through the hysteresis effect of the field of graduate employment, for example, is changing and it's rewarding the actual degree less and less and it's rewarding other things, other, other attributes um, or what uh, Michael Tomlinson would call, would call um, forms of graduateness. But it, only certain people understand that this field is actually changing. So the, the lag between the field changing is shorter for some and very long and sometimes permanent for others. And so in terms of my own research, I, I find this very much with the working class graduates that I interviewed and the middle class graduates that I interviewed. And so there was a, a prolonged hysteresis effect. So for my working class graduates, 
they, they very much still had a very meritocratic idea of how things worked. So Steve said, you go to school, then university, then a master's, and then you get a job. So his answer to the, devalue, to the devaluation of a degree was to get a master's. So it was still within the actual degree realm rather than thinking about, I need to join a club or a society. And then from uh, Sarah, whenever she graduated university, she, she was very, very frustrated. So she said, I thought I could go into marketing or HR because I did, I, I did part of that in the last year of uni. They were asking for two years experience. I was like, I'm only out of university. No one's giving me a break. It was just like. So again, she was expecting if I do this degree, I'll then walk into one of these jobs rather than all of those other things that people did along the way. And so if we, we can see the sort of reason why this split in actually in knowing how to, to play the game comes about through the, um, the, uh, uh, the effects of um, hysteresis. Yeah, and it's this rich, yeah. And so I had some people who are also uh, working in HR who focused on working in the NHS because there were, there were more opportunities in Northern Ireland at the time. And they knew how that field was just changing a tiny, you know, a tiny bit. Um, and I always think about it, it may be because I, I, I have a two-year-old, but you know those games where there's the ships, the, 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 and like holes with, which are a, and like circle hole, square hole. It's trying to put the, and like circle through the, and like triangle, which he tries to do quite often and it never works for him. But um, it's, that, it's, that, it's that sort of idea of you need to actually realign with, with the field if you're, you're gonna be successful. And so the, the middle class graduates got this. So Phil talks about how the university only gets you so far. Lindsay, his gains are similar to the, um, the, the Nathan respondent from Richard talks about how um, I think having that job, the extracurricular spin-off company was definitely um, uh, definitely important for my degree, especially if you're hoping to go on into professional life afterwards. So she had these sort of things set up as she went along because she again understood that um, history that she, she, she understood that the field actually had shifted because the lag in terms of the hysteresis effect was actually quite short for, for her. And she got this, this, this information through her, her various networks. Now, in terms of social reproduction, which is the sort of main thing that um, Pierre Bourdieu is looking at, we need to have mechanisms of reproduction. So there, there has to be something at the beginning almost of, of people's lives which actually set them up on this reproduced uh, pathway. And so for Bourdieu, a central element within, the, within this mechanism is um, symbolic violence. Okay? It's one of the sort of key concepts that he, he talks about in terms of his work on, on education. And then later on he, he revisits it when he talks about gender. And so he says, um, a symbolic violence, to put it as tersely and simply as possible, where usually most people reading Bourdieu laugh at that bit because nothing's ever simple <laughs> within Bourdieu, right? Um, is the violence which is exercised upon a social agent with his or her, um, his or her complicity. And that's, that's, that's the central, that's the sort of... Um, crux of symbolic violence. We're actually part of that process. We're actually complicit in it. And so within symbolic violence, people are aware that social structures are based on disadvantage, but accept it as being so. 
and they, they actually don't understand that actually quite a violent act is actually happening to them. They think that's actually just how things are and they accept that they may not be happy with it but they but they do think well that's you know that's actually um, uh, how the world works and so it's through the process of symbolic violence and self-regulation that we get the very often referenced line from Borgia that's not for the likes of us and so it's the opting out aspect of Borgia and that that this line and the fish out of water are probably the two most often referenced lines actually from Borgia um, and so this is the sort of this is the actual source of it and so um, the education system is is a is a central site in terms of actually facilitating um, symbolic violence. And so, what I wanted you to do for just two or three minutes is think about how do these different aspects of the school system, so unwritten rules, language used, subjects taught, and the um, design of the buildings, how do you think they would facilitate this system of symbolic violence? Is that all right? Just for like two, three minutes, just, and then we'll come back, I get some ideas, and then we'll talk about sort of how awful things are for other people in a minute. <laughs> All right, yeah? So, could I, could I get any volunteers to, anyone who'd like to volunteer some ideas? Sorry to mixed up all of your conversations um, in mid-flow, but are there any ideas of sort of how these 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 various aspects of the education system help to um, help to facilitate um, symbolic violence? With the design of buildings, yeah. Uh, if you take Oxford and Cambridge colleges, yeah, they can be really really scary. So yeah, yeah. You've never experienced that. And only seen it either in Downton Abbey or Hogwarts. Yeah, it's very Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, like, Eton looks like Cambridge. Yeah. Right. And so you just you just feel at home. Whereas I remember going to Open Day in Durham once, and it was one of the older colleges, and like people were in gowns, and there were these absolutely huge like fireplaces. No way, I'm, yeah. I'm leaving. But yeah, you know, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. It's, the, it's not. Yeah. Me, it? So it's the actual like, architecture. So yeah, it's the like, red brick. Mm -hmm. Look like that, yeah. right? You know, and so that they like they they're they're trying to like preserve a certain aesthetic and a certain people certain people feel as if they belong there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's you know it's things like I remember again I remember it was at Durham and we were getting. This this and like this and like lecture about 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 about, about like what life would be there, and they're talking about during the um during the the like term that was called Michaelmas term. We'll do yeah. this. And I was like, sorry, have I missed a month of the? What, what are you talking about? Where everyone else is like, you know, pleb, you know, because I I had no idea what was going on, and they all did. You know, and then there's this sort of them and, and us then a lot of approach. Because they feel like everyone else knows, so they feel they're looking yeah. at you, even though half them don't know. But yeah. then you get that kind of like, I don't want to be seen as a stupid one, so I won't ask, but then nobody asks, so it just goes on and on and on. And that's that's actually a sort of like central uh, and like part of um, <laughs> the government from Borgia is that because, especially if you're working class, you have lower levels of all of the types of capital that 
were discussed earlier on. So all you have is your educational capital or your scholastic capital, as uh, as it as it, as it as it was uh, referred to by uh, Borgia. So if you ask a question, you're saying that you don't have as much of that capital as everyone thinks that you do. So, so you're actually owning up to not being as rich in that capital and that then, and if you're only there because of your educational capital, then you're actually highlighting that you don't belong there as much as it seems that you do on paper. And so that's why they don't ask questions. You know, it's, it's sort of because of that, yeah. Yeah, and it's the, it's the fact that it's all, so because it, it's, there are clear rules, right? But they're all tacit. Yeah. And so people know them and people don't. But because we don't know what we don't know, when someone succeeds, it just looks like, well, they're just better at that than I am. It's not because they've been given this, this script over the dinner table or through mom and dad or through whomever. And so, and that's, that's sort of how that, that sort of unfolds. And the... You know, the effects of symbolic violence are um, really well documented. So there's the work from um, from um, Paul Connolly from Queens, who was looking at uh, kids who were in uh, P6 and P7, uh, thinking about opting out of the um, uh, 11 plus. So that was kids who were 10, and 11 saying I don't belong in a grammar school I'm too working class so it's it's you know it gets in them really early it's not something which you know takes that long to actually form and then it actually does uh, stick with them so you can see it um, affecting fairly young kids in terms of in terms of uh, accessing HE there's the work from uh, Diane Ray where she she talks about this sort of sense of actually belonging impacts on whether people go and then also where they go so there is this sort of like classed like patterns not just off certain universities not actually letting certain people in but actually actually certain people opting to not go for those universities because they, they don't feel uh, like they belong. And then also in terms of life after university, so some of the work from Furlong and Cartmel talking about how the working class graduates expecting to, to, to earn less than the average graduate wage because that's just actually what they deserve. You know, it's this sort of sense of this is where I actually sit and that's fine. But it is actually a violent process but but we're actually um complicit within that yeah but it's the sort of but we sort of accept it as how you know that's the that's the sort of like part of it is that we see it as that's actually just how the world works rather than that's you know you can be annoyed about it but it's not something which can actually be attacked or addressed because it's sort of something which is almost almost normal there is something about agency but also the fact that nine out of ten working class kids in northern ireland don't go to grammar schools there's that's that's too many of an actual trend to say that that this is just agency and certainly some of the work from Paul Willis in the 70s on working class lads has been fairly uh, critiqued um, by uh, a guy called Vacan who worked with Bourdieu in the 90s and basically Vacan is saying that rather than it being an example of agency it's an example of symbolic violence celebrated as agency there is agency within Bourdieu's model so the 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 habitus is is um it was defined once as regulated improvisations right and so people can go down certain paths but they are sort of capped 
and they are regulated by uh, social space. But I think the, 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 the sort of argument from Borgia is that this the huge scale of you know so many working class kids not going. So yeah, there there are some who opt out, and that's actually great. But there's so many more who 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 opt out because they they don't feel that they belong, and maybe actually not for the right reasons. And it sounds strange, but in Northern Ireland, we do have like basically working class grammar schools. You know, where like everyone who goes there is actually is actually working class. All of the all of the family teachers are really local. It's quite strange learning Latin with a really broad Belfast accent, but it does actually work, you know, so um, so uh, those do actually exist as well. But I think there's something which uh, Borgia would always celebrate is um, pushing his ideas forward. And so that's why he always talked about, um, about the big three of uh, how this capital and field being thinking tools and think with them and push them forward and don't just redo actually what I did. And so certainly in terms of symbolic violence, we can think about it affecting the actual dominant group as well. So typically it's about uh, the reproduction of social disadvantage within what's known as the dominated group. But, but, but it can equally, sorry, not equally, it can also affect the dominant group as well. So um, Bourdieu, when he was talking about a Virginia Woolf poem, talked about how there is the, this opposite, this sort of um, inverted version of symbolic violence in terms of um, masculinity and um, uh, sort of feeling comfortable in terms of expressing your emotions, for example. Okay? And so, um, in terms of how that, that, that impacts on the, uh, in terms of HE and the graduate labour market, I, I've argued in some previous work that, that it can actually impact on how some middle class graduates make their way through that, that field. And so, um, I had this group from, from my uh, research that, that I called the um, Entitled Middle Class. And so they, they were very successful in both education and higher education. They were, they were uh, very good at uh, understanding how to play the game, but they also had a sense of entitlement where they expected the game to actually come t uh, to them. And so what that meant was is that they, they, they were actually waiting around for a suitable graduate job to actually basically just appear rather than actually playing the game and taking some jobs in the meantime to then actually maybe eventually enter the, um, uh, the graduate labour market. And so I've got two quotes here from the respondents. So Johnny, this was his reaction to his, um, um, his careers advisor telling him that maybe actually don't be a, a fiction author. So, you know, maybe try something else. And he says, I didn't really care. I just thought I'm going to go try and do, and do what I want to do anyway. It didn't count uh, for anything. It was kind of, it was kind of a talk and stuff. But I think in my own mind, I knew the direction that I wanted to go in. So he had a very clear sense of what he wanted to do, and no one was actually going to, um, uh, I'm like, stop, I'm actually doing that. And then also Hannah, where she says, I've been a waitress since I was 19. It was my first job. I got a job in a four-star four hotel, and I worked in uh, various upmarket restaurants. Hannah was really interesting in the sense that she wanted to be an actress, uh, but she didn't actually go to drama school. She just 
did a drama course somewhere else that didn't have any links with various agents and, and so on because she expected that these jobs would actually just be given to her. And she uh, often just worked part-time only in the fanciest shops. So like wine shops, cheese shops, really nice restaurants. Uh, she couldn't, um, uh, nearly she couldn't almost um, exist within other part-time jobs, even though they actually basically paid the same um, amount of money because she could only see herself doing middle-class things, right? And so, and so she, was, she would, and this went on for uh, years and years where she would just continually take these jobs waiting to uh, become an actress. And so rather than it being sort of a like, glass ceiling or a glass floor, which was awfully misquoted in a leading <laughs> journal, uh, they stand on a concrete floor. They're basically just waiting for things to happen and they can't go downwards. So they can't take that full-time job somewhere just to get them tied over until something comes up. It has to be something within what they um, expect um, that, 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 that they would have gone into. And certainly some of the, the other applications I argued was um, the effects of, of the recession on the on, on like lower middle class families and how you have now got a, a different kind of lifestyle and how do you actually navigate whenever one of you uh, loses your job you know if, do you know how you know do you know how the like bargain bin works uh, in Tesco's you know sort of things like that can you actually navigate the um, everyday life to then actually get on until you uh, um, come out the other side and so that that was the sort of uh, main thinking behind this idea around um, inverted symbolic violence. Now, as, as Richard was saying earlier on, habitus is durable, but it's not eternal, which is a fairly important point actually from Bourdieu, because sort of one of the main uh, critiques against the idea of the habitus is that it's fixed and that it's stuck and that it's this sort of iron cage almost. And so we can't actually get out of it. And um, Borgia talks about this, this idea of the um, trajectory effect, where essentially he says most, most people within a social group will go down a certain path, but there will be a, a smaller uh, amount of each group which do actually diverge, and whether that's upwards or downwards, uh, depending on the group. And so um, and Borgia is very mindful to to um, present the habitus as something which is actually flexible, or what D Diane Ray calls permeable, okay, in terms of things actually can go into it and things can change. And uh, he says in one of his books in the early 90s that habitus can change through um, if we have a significant change of influence. So if we can, if we can get so much out of our own uh, environment that we can then actually have that we can actually um, change some of our uh, norms and values and, and our dispositions. He does also say that this is really, really unlikely. Like the, the very next sentence, he says, you can change, but you also probably won't because our environments are generally fixed, which sort of brings you back to this idea of the uh, trajectory effect that the majority of people will actually be going along within their sort of set path, within their uh, set paths. And so, but ways in which I've actually found that habitus can change is first of all through this idea of the um, out of environment uh, experiences. And so I had one of my groups in my research was known as the um, 
a strategic working class. And so these were individuals who had quite low levels of educational expectations, fairly poor understanding of navigating social space, and when they graduated, they, they continued to have a uh, non-graduate job. For the people in the study, it was at least four years after they uh, graduated that they then actually got a, uh, a what, what, what would be defined as a, um, a graduate job. The reason why this happened was that they had a significant uh, encounter with an individual, uh, which uh, increased their levels of expectations and gave them a strong understanding of a context, uh, a specific social space. So there was uh, one person who uh, went on a march with a, a local um, political party, got really, really involved in that, and then actually went on further with that um, party. So all of a sudden, he had a really strong understanding of that one party in that one country. And so it, it wasn't that, that then he all of a sudden got a general understanding of actually how to play the game, but he understood how to play the game slightly better based on what that individual had actually told him. So it wasn't that they had, that he had um, escaped his, his habitus, but it was more that his actual habitus had uh, changed. And so that was coming through his, um, uh, his out-of-environment um, experiences. The other way, I think, in which uh, habitus can, well, the way in which pathways can change is also shifts in levels of capital. So very often people focus almost too much, um, Diane Ray would say, on the habitus and not so much actually on the on the impact of capital and so also shifts in in capital and the sort of re 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 and like balancing of of how those three forms of capital interact can also also can, it can also lead to uh, social mobility and so again from the research i had a group that that were known as the um the, the converted working class and so they had very low levels of educational expectations, again, very poor understandings of navigating social space. Um, upon graduation, they entered a non-graduate job. However, they had a one-time exchange of a high level of capital, it was usually social capital, which, which they then um, exchanged for a graduate job. So um, there was a guy who wanted to be a teacher. There was, uh, his relative knew someone in one school got him in and now he's a teacher in that school. But at the same time, once that capital was used, um, it was gone. So he couldn't use that contact to get either a um, promotion in the school or to get a job in any other school as well. So it was a very, very limited um, use of uh, capital. And so also once that capital was used, their, their uh, low levels of expectations returned. So what I find within this group is that once they, once they realized that they had this um, uh, connection, they, they, they then actually felt very strongly about entering that uh, kind of job. And they thought that it was actually possible until that was used and then they had no interest in going further up the ranks. So I had another respondent who uh, managed to get into a law firm and she uh, told me that she's very happy being a junior solicitor that thinks she was 26 at this point until she retires. So she has no aspirations or expectations to go any further. That um, one use of capital got her in and then that's that's just where she actually wants uh, to stay. So we can see how sort of different different um, 
uh, influence on the habitus and different combinations of uh, capitals lead to uh, um, different pathways outside of some of more of the sort of idea that the habitus is actually fixed and stuck. Now also what we get is the actual pain of social mobility. So it can actually be, be actually quite a, um, a um, traumatic uh, um, experience. And so Freeman, uh, who builds on some of the work from Borgia, talks about the habitus cleave. I'm sorry, I couldn't find the, the uh, accent on my keyboard. It's not habitus clive, I promise. <laughs> it's habitus cleave, but I just couldn't do it. Uh, I looked everywhere. So either the cleft habitus or um, habitus cleave, where basically a habitus is split over uh, two fields. And basically, you don't really feel comfortable in either of the fields. Now, a much more nuanced reading of the uh, cleft habitus comes from some of um, Nicola Ingram's work, uh, when she's working with um, Jesse Abrams. And they actually try and, and give us a four uh, point model of the relationship between the old and the new habitus and the actual consequences on the self rather than then just thinking about a sort of one one sort of one uh, a sort of like one way of looking at the uh, um, the cleft habitus so they first of all talk about the um, abandoned habitus and this is where the, um, the original habitus is uh, overwritten by the new and the, the individual manages to pass as middle class, but they're then strangers in their um, natal communities. So they, find that they have difficulty going home and actually talking with their, their um, peers and with their family and things like that. We have the reconfirmed habitus where the, the, um, the conditions for which um, are meant to form this new habitus are actually rejected and the uh, old habitus is uh, reconfirmed. Then also have the idea of a reconciled habitus where the habitus recognizes, accepts, and navigates two fields or field um, field um, field um, positions. And then the destabilized habitus where two fields or field positions basically pull the habitus apart in two different directions and it's unable to balance the demands. And so usually, a cleft habitus has negative effects. So three out of the four models are actually problematic. The only one in which in which you can see a sort of sort of a like positive out, uh, outlook, I think, is actually within the uh, reconciled habitus. But it's to try and think about some of the nuances within habitus. The fact that it is actually open to, to change through um, uh, uh, outside environments, or how habitus and uh, different forms of capital interact with each other and then actually give different pathways but then also the actual pain of social mobility. Now, um, there are unsurprisingly some people who don't agree with with uh, Bourdieu and so some of the arguments are first of all that he belongs in France. He was writing about, he was, he was writing about French culture, French educational system, French uh, rules of art and so on so it doesn't actually, he, he doesn't actually translate. Uh, I actually have, I actually have seen written down in academic articles. He's just too bloody difficult to read. Um, but you know, unfortunately, that's just that's just how sort of French theory is written. Um, his main theoretical uh, publication was written in 1977, and 
in um, an outline of a theory of practice and what does that speak uh, to uh, today. Most of those arguments, I think, are fairly weak and I don't like to uh, engage them as much. The one that you do, that, that is fair enough, is that Borgia focuses too much on structure. And so Richard Jenkins, one of the, one of the only leading uh, um, critics on Borgia, uh, called his uh, theoretical project a failure because he didn't manage to bridge structure and agency because the habitus is too, is too fixed, it's too, it's too durable, and it doesn't actually allow for all of these different changes. And then also the idea that because Borgia doesn't think enough about reflexivity, he then um, doesn't give enough uh, um, power to the actual individual agent, or he, he doesn't think enough uh, about agency. To this point, he reacted by saying the reason why his work on the lack of reflexivity has gained so much uh, prominence is because people don't like to, to, to think of themselves as helpless or as fixed or as not in charge of their lives. It's not a very popular um, uh, argument to tell someone that you have certain choices in this box based on the, the various levels of capitals and habitus. People don't like to hear that, but that's, that's not our job as uh, social scientists is to make them happy. We actually nearly always make them unhappy, right? That's, that's, that's sort of what we do. So that was his argument to that. I think, you know, um, Borgia being one of the last authors within the late modern era, um, but he doesn't really subscribe to a lot of the arguments within late modernity. So even though he was writing at the same time as people like Ulrich Beck and Sigmund Bauman, he doesn't get, he doesn't, his outlook on how, on how social space works is actually very different. And it is more structured than the, than the other authors writing at the time. I think he's sort of trying to say that just because we're in late modern times doesn't mean that we're actually late modern individuals. And we actually are still very fixed in terms of how um, we're influenced by types of, by types of capital and, and by um, uh, um, habitus and so on. And really, his work actually still still does give us uh, pause for thought when we think about access to higher education or the the um, like class nature of various types of jobs or uh, various people's ex um, um, experiences off their time either it's in school or in higher education or in sort of various forms of uh, um, graduate employment. And so thank you very much for your time listening to me, uh, and I think we've got a plenary or something. Is that right? Yeah.